Thanks for coming back. Hard to believe. Two weeks in a row. And I've put out a podcast. Unbelievable. Uh, You're listening to Too Lazy to Write, the podcast hosted by me, John Baker, the real John Baker, at the real John Baker. And um, so last week, I talked to uh, Shelly Sherman, who was, uh, still is, she's a DJ, on uh, the Voice of Peace, and um, she works out of Flint or out of Michigan. Not Flint. Flint's been in the news lately, though. Or no? What was I? I was watching. Oh, I was watching Love After Lockup, and Flint was highlighted. But if you do recall, um, in my chat with Shelley, she mentioned her friend Howard Kramer and how I should get in touch with Howard because Howard would be somebody interesting to talk to. Well, it turned out he was. I spoke with Howard. Uh, from his home in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm bouncing all over the world. If you think about it, I've talked to uh, a woman, because you've been following me, a woman in Thailand, a couple of people in Toronto, uh, Toronto, Thailand, Australia, Los Angeles, Ottawa. Um, Well, I spoke with uh, my friend Paul in Wales, Oh my goodness, I've been all over the world. Doug in uh, New York City. Angela was in Los Angeles. Um, There's been a lot more. Anyway, Abigail was in Thailand. Talked about her. Anyway, so long story short, who did I talk to? I spoke to Howard Kramer. Howard, okay, I'm going to give you, I could read you his LinkedIn bio. He's a published author, he is an authority on pop culture, rock and roll history and the music industry, and for 17 years, he was also a disc jockey, and he was a tour manager for some acts you may have heard of, like, uh, oh, Jeffrey Gaines, I saw him live, Uh, The Dead Milkman, G-Love and Special Sauce, also saw them live. Anyway, uh, he was a disc jockey in Greater Philadelphia, and for 17 years and seven months, Howard Kramer was the curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where I talked to him from, over the telephone, and here it is. You're in Cleveland, right? Yes. And uh, former curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum? That is correct. How long um, did you do that for? I started there in December of 1996. Uh, it was about 15 months after the museum opened, and I was there till June of 2014. And, but you didn't start out as the curator, did you? Yeah, I was hired as oh. a curator. I mean, I, I went through a series of titles. I was assistant curator, then associate curator, then director over the course of the years I was there. Uh, I was... I had the title of director for most of the time I was, for the majority of the time I was there and supervised the curatorial staff. And how does one, like, what was your background before you, you got into this? Or- well, it's a, it's a funny thing you ask because within many other museums, there are disciplines where there, it's a very clear path, you know, mm-hmm. an educational path and, and internship paths and all that sort of thing. But that's for art. That's for fine art. In the pop culture world, when I was hired as a curator, there were virtually no other people in the world who did that. So my background was the music business. When they hired the job, because it was a posted position that I, I um, inquired about, they were looking for someone who, you know, hopefully had a museum background. But the most important thing that they needed was someone who understood the history of rock and roll, 
not just knew it, but understood it. Okay. And also understood how to deal with artists in the music business. And my background was the essentially the live music business. I was an artist manager. I was a booking agent. I was a tour manager. Uh, I worked in that realm. So I and I worked for concert promoters as well. I understood how to work with artists, and I had a pretty decent phone book. I knew a lot of people. A lot of people knew me. And part of doing that that job was not being starstruck. Right. Knowing how to have a very direct and frank conversation with people who are oftentimes significant artists or their managers or significant people in the industry and try to create bridges of trust. Which you obviously were able to do. I was pretty good at that. I think. Yeah. Um, now you said um, you didn't get, you couldn't be starstruck, but I think we're all a little starstruck at one point in our life. Was there anyone who, who you did come in contact with that you were just, you couldn't believe? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, but that's an internal conversation. You know, you never, you can't, you know, you never show them your cards. Right. Uh, so, you know, there were a couple of people along the way who I was, I had the, the um, internal conversation of, is this really happening? Mm-hmm. And then in outwardly, just try to keep your cool. Um, well, one of them was, I mean, uh, Bill Clinton came to the museum one time unannounced. I had five minutes warning that he was showing up. Oh. He was, he was in Cleveland. This is after his presidency. He was in Cleveland to uh, campaign for um, the, the, the then Democratic nominee for the governor of Ohio. Okay. And he had some time to kill, and he wanted to come to the museum. And I happened to be the only person there for my staff because most of my fellow coworkers had gone to this political rally. Oh. So when he showed up, it was me. His, his Secret Service detail and a couple of security people from the Rock Hall. And um, I was told by his head of Secret Service, like, he's talking to you and only you. Oh, okay. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so you got to be cool about it. I mean, the, 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 so you got to be cool about it because he is a former president of the United States and he was security, you know, he was Secret Service people there. But the fortunate thing is his photographer is a friend of mine. Oh. So we had a mutual friend and that helped break the ice. For sure. Um, so that, that was a big one. Um, another time, and this is actually one of my favorite stories was, um, it was Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin and I had met him several times, but this was in London, um, at an exhibit opening in the Victorian Albert Museum on an exhibit that I worked on with the V&A and he came to the opening and we spent some time together going through the exhibit and basically spent about an hour and a half together, he and I talking about stuff. And at the end of the evening, we're, the, the, the party's over, and he and I are sitting on a bench outside the Victorian Albert. It's a beautiful spring afternoon in London evening. It's like 72 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. And we're just talking, and he's telling me about the Led Zeppelin reunion that had occurred six months before. So this was May of 2008, okay. and Zeppelin had reunited in December of 2007. Wow. And I, and I honestly, there was a moment in time where I grabbed my arm and pinched myself, <laughs> thinking... I'm sitting here alone with Jimmy Page, and he's talking to me about a Led Zepp- about the Led Zeppelin reunion. Yeah, this just doesn't happen in real life, but it happened in my real life, so That's, it was a pretty cool one. What a great, what a great memory. Yeah. Um, was there anything that you brought to the? So I just actually before, is there a, a difference between the Hall of Fame and the museum? Yes, they're two separate organizations. The, okay. Hall, the Hall of Fame was founded earlier, and the Hall of Fame is based in New York. Um, it was founded by. A group of very prominent people in the entertainment business, most notably Jan Wenner, um, Seymour Stein, who is the uh, founder of uh, Sire Records. Jan, of course, is the founder of Rolling Stone um, magazine and many other 
distinguished individual. Oh, Ahmed Erdogan, of course, the legendary founder of mm -hmm. Atlantic Records, Jerry Wexler. So um, they started the business of inducting people in 1986. Uh, I think Cleveland was chosen as the site in 88. Is that right? 88? Yeah, I think it's 88. Okay. And then they broke ground in 93 and opened in 95. Um, Cleveland is run by a separate not-for-profit called Cleveland Rock and Roll. Uh, they administer the museum. And there's a joint board that oversees them, which is, you know, kind of, I think, perfunctory. But um, they are two separate 501c3s. Okay. The, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, is a 501c3 based in New York State. Or Cleveland Rock and Roll, the museum, is a 501c3 based in Ohio. Okay. Okay. So, the, so the the nights that we see on HBO, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Do you have you gone to those? I've been to many of them, but that is a production of the Hall of Fame in New York, the Hall right. of Fame Foundation. That is their sole, basically, single event every year. Okay. Single fundraising event every year. Well, I actually um, <clears throat> years ago. So years ago, when I was about twelve, my bubby got me a uh, subscription to Rolling Stone magazine that I had for probably. 18 years. Okay. And um, I contacted the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and donated all of my magazines to them years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And in return, they sent me a great uh, book, uh, like a you know, whatever the exhibit that was going on at the time was the book they'd sent me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I put in my letter that the stipulation was, if ever they were displayed, it had to say, from the private collection of Jonathan Baker, uh, mm -hmm. as originated by his bubby. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on display, huh? Nah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. <laughs> it's uh, somewhere in a. I always picture it's like that uh, scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's, there is always that vision that people conjure up. Um, it's they're actually uh, your magazines are located at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archive on the campus of Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland on Woodland Avenue. Excellent. Um, that there is a a large uh, archive there uh, and. They should, they, that's where they would live. Did you get a lot of personal donations from just random strangers? Well, you get people calling and offering things. And actually, a subscription to a Rolling Stone run is common. In fact, you turn things down all the time because you just simply don't need them. Okay. Um, in fact, the weird thing about... Okay, so printed matter goes in the library and archives. You know, printed things, two-dimensional things like that. Uh, artifacts are a different story. You know, if you were to call me and say... You know, uh, I have a uh, concert poster from when the Beatles appeared at, uh, you know, um, in Washington in 1964, the first first concert ever. That's a significant artifact. Right. That would go in the collection of the museum. But if you were to have like a run of magazines, that would go to the library and archives. Now, the truth of the matter is, if there's a digital copy of the magazine, it's as good as having a hard copy of the magazine because it's just the information. Right. That's the thing about um, publications uh, and periodicals. They're not the physical thing isn't important. So uh, quite often, you know, we would turn down the more, like I say, pedestrian things. Like you know, someone would say, "Oh, my uncle died," and. Uh, I have his record collection, and generally speaking, you know, you don't need 300 copies of Bob Seger Stranger in town. Right. Nothing wrong with Bob Seger Stranger <laughs> in town, but you don't need 300 copies of it. So you you would turn down a, a significant portion of the record collections and things like that. It's it's the weirdo stuff. I mean, uh, there was a woman who lived in Cleveland. I met had through whatever means she got it um, a handwritten rehearsal set list from Mick Jagger. Uh, it was a Rolling Stones set list, uh, rehearsal set list from January of 1973 when they were rehearsing for 
a benefit show that they did for the Nicaraguan earthquake relief and then did played Hawaii toward Australia and New Zealand. It, it's like those bizarro things yeah. show up every once in a while. Yeah. And is there a separate uh, wing for, as you said, the bizarro stuff? Well, I wouldn't say bizarro. That's that's actually pretty extraordinary. Bizarro is kind of a, not not the proper term, but yeah. uh, the truth is, things like that would go in the museum. The museum there is a storage area in the museum building itself okay. for arch- for artifacts. We, I, my brother and I went probably in the late '90s. We were in Toronto, and my brother said, "Hey, we should go to Cleveland. It's only three hours away." And it's not, by the way. It's five hours, <laughs> yeah. actually. Yes, but <laughs> but we we went and we had a a, a great afternoon there. Um, Good. And I was struck at the time that there was a section dedicated to one-hit wonders. I thought that was really unique and inventive. Well, I'm glad you liked that. I mean, at the the one you saw was the was the static one, which was basically a wall with photographs right. and a and a soundtrack. We later, actually, one of the things I did was I updated that and we made it as part of a touchscreen interactive okay. kiosk where there were many, many more records. Uh, I, I can't remember what the total were. I think there may have been over 200 one-hit wonders when we were done. Yeah. And you could, you know, hear the song, read a little bit about the artist, see a picture, either a picture of the artist or a copy of the record, picture sleeve, some sort of graphic representation. But the point is, those things fill the story. And to the point where certain records have so far surpassed the career of the person who created them. I mean, I'll, a, a simple example in this country would be Take On Me by AHA, right? right? In in Europe, they are massive stars. In um, North America, they're a one-hit wonder. Yeah. But that song has not gone away. Yeah. It it kind of has become part of the pop 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 culture. Like you you see it, it you know it creeps up in movies and TV shows all the time. Um, so yeah, it definitely does have a a, a long standing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of those records are. I mean, I, I, I hear things on the radio or actually in commercials all the time. Yeah. That um, it was like, wow, someone thought about using that one. Okay. Pretty yeah. Interesting. I keep on hearing there's a Fleetwood Mac song now that's being used for like an arthritis medicine. And I keep thinking, was really, was that what it was written for? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's Don't Stop is yeah. being used. Don't yeah, Stop. Um, that's right. Yeah, don't Stop. That's right. Yeah. Uh, there was actually something else about the Hall of Fame that I wanted to mention, but um, mm-hmm. it completely slipped my mind. But I'm sure it'll come come right back to me. Well, well, to your point about one hit wonders and your 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 surprise to seeing that, the point is it's a very multifaceted story, and you have to tell as many stories as you possibly can, mm-hmm. as thoroughly as you possibly can. Right. I well, mean, that's the hardest thing about the job of curator. It's not what you do; it's what you don't say. You know, how do you edit yourself? It's a very difficult platform to communicate on Do, um you know go ahead i'm sorry oh no no continue i, I don't want to it's people walk into museums and to them there's there's a visual element whether it's art or, or a science museum or pop culture museum and there's a lot of information presented uh, but how you get to that information and what you present and, how, and in what way is the big challenge for being a curator how do you tell the story because you cannot tell every story in its entirety mm-hmm. in a museum you can so you have to really massage what you're doing and try and really you know hit the points you know you set up a really good outline and go for that so was your um like did you always have in your mind that you wanted to tell this story in in different ways over over different time periods was there a theme to what you were what with do- one hit wonders no just in general with with the exhibits that you would 
um, well, put out. it comes down to what the subject is. You know, each subject has dictates certain things. You know, you're, if you're doing it about an artist, there are each artist has a certain thing about them. So, say the Clash. Okay, we did this wonderful exhibit about the Clash. I was a very big fan of the group. I was fortunate to see them. I met them, and you know, back in the day, that was great. The, but the how, what is the story of the Clash? Where do you hang the key posts of it, the key points of it? And in my mind, it was every Clash record was was an occasion. Mm-hmm. It was their albums that really set the set the the tempo. Even though they're known as a great live act, you waited for the records because there was still the thing. Mm-hmm. And so we built the exhibit around that. Since there were really you know six records in their career, that was that. And within those elements, you could tell the story. But say you're doing something about Motown. I mean, Motown is a very rich story about many artists, about the Gordy family, about uh, uh, black entrepreneurship, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, black identity in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of stories there. So where do you go with that? Right. Just to give you an idea. Right. That's, again, a very nuanced story. Well, yeah. And I mean, it has so many different arms and, and uh, moving mm-hmm. parts. And it's it's still evolving, right? Um, Motown or just the, those, those, uh, those, those themes? Well, I think both. I mean, Motown still is a, obviously a record label, but are they... Well, Motown's a, a record label, but the Motown that exists today is not the Motown that existed years ago. Now it's a brand. Right. But uh, the, the difference being is there are still many of the same concerns uh, in terms of social justice and nuance with you know, um, uh, identity and... Uh, Cultural appropriation is a big one too. <laughs> how, yeah. do you, how do you uh, how do you how do you work that in the story? But that's more contemporary. Well, I was actually I remember what I was thinking about. I I was particularly uh, taken by the exhibit that was there about um, disc jockeys across <clears throat> excuse me North America because somebody I worked with at the time his father was included in the audio tracks that were there so that was oh, a really, really yeah it, uh, jungle j nelson was um, a toronto okay. dj and at the time i worked with his well i worked in the same building as his son he kind oh, of, okay. yeah um, who was who was the morning man where we were and um, so yeah he was really taken when i said yeah i heard your dad's uh, air check mm-hmm. so well the, again that's part of the story of music. How do how do people get to music? Right. You know, you said you, your your Bobby gave you a subscription to Rolling Stone, which I'm sure, at some point, or another, enlightened you an artist to an artist you never heard of, and you discovered something through their journalism. For sure. Am yeah. I, okay. Well, with radio, particularly from the '50s through the mid, well, let's go to the early '80s. That's how people heard music up yeah. until the point of MTV. That's yeah. how people heard music. You heard it on the radio, and there was active engagement with stations. They were locally owned and operated. The DJs were in your town. You could see them out at various functions. Now it's not like that, of course, but there was a direct connection between the listener and the broadcast entity. And the one thing about that exhibit that made it difficult is, because we did expand that, and I, and I hired a guy um, to, to come in right now. I'm blanking on his name, but I hired a guy to help like fill it out, a guy who really knew radio better than I did. And that was, um, uh, it's, when, when you come visit, so you come from Toronto to visit this, you're not going to listen to a DJ from, you know, Omaha, Nebraska. Right. Or Minneapolis. You're just going to go to your town or the towns you know. Yeah. And it's a hyper-local thing. So it, there's a lot of constituencies to be, to be um, served in that one. It was, it, it, it actually kind of got difficult because you couldn't sometimes find materials in certain DJs. It was, it, it was a challenge. But 
I, I like that one a lot. I've always liked that one a lot. I hope it survives there. Yeah, I know it was really interesting to just, you know, know that I was one degree of, of separation away from a guy in the in the Hall of Fame. It was, it was... Jonathan Baker and Brushes with Greatness. Well, now, um, <laughs> I have been just, but just but bear in mind, bear in mind, I, want, I also want to make a, a very clear point. Being included in an exhibit does not mean you're in the Hall of Fame. Right. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, with the broad, with broadcasters, and here's a, a funny story related to that, um, there was a luncheon held at the Rock Hall, I want to say in 1998, for a number of very well-known, you know, famous disc jockeys from around North America. Okay. And many of them had, uh, attended. Many of them considered that an induction ceremony, and when they died... They in their obituaries it said was inducted in the Rock and Roll oh. Hall of Fame in 1998, and I can assure you that there are only three disc jockeys inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and the fact that they did that, I mean, it, people just misunderstood it. And what are you going to do? You know, yeah, they just just misunderstood. It was a luncheon. It was a reception for these people to honor them, but they they thought it was something else. So. Well, it, when years ago Michael Jackson received. It was some award, like I forget, maybe the American Music Awards. And Britney Spears said, like when she was introducing him, the the pop artist of the millennium. And he thought in his speech that he was being named that, but it was just an off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I yeah. remember that. And yeah. uh, that's quite an honor. Wow. Why? Okay, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're just egomaniacal enough to believe that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say I've been lucky because um, I, I used to volunteer at a festival in Ottawa, uh, Blues Fest, and I would drive artists around. So I did. Sure. I did get what you were talking about about you know keeping like your inside voice where you didn't want to gush. Um, mm -hmm. because it is hard because, and, and also sometimes, and maybe this happened to you, were you ever just disappointed and been like, Oh really? I, I wish I didn't meet that person. Well, there, well, in some cases, yeah, but I, I had worked with musicians long enough to understand that my expectations are meaningless, that you can hope that a person's a decent person, whether they are a very famous performer or whether they're your next door neighbor it comes mm -hmm. down to what type of person they are. Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing. Um, there's, I mean, I've met a number of major personalities who I just don't care for at all. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't want to be in a room with them. And I've met a number of them who are the most wonderful people. Yeah. Um, and you want to spend more time with them. You want to get to know them because they clearly exhibit those sort of, you know, uh, character uh, attributes that, you find attractive another human being and some don't so it's you, you just deal with it it comes with the um comes with the job shelly had told me uh, in an email that you had struck up a friendship with elvis costello yeah um i've i met him when i was a fan uh mm -hmm. back in the early 80s and you know i we, we've maintained a relationship i I would say we're friendly i would not characterize it as friends okay uh but he has been very kind to me uh, he always makes time for me whenever I come to a show. Uh, we always end up sitting down and talking about stuff. In many ways, very personal things. Well, well, you know, last time we had a conversation about our moms. Our mothers are about the same age, and his is having some significant health issues, and mine's not. But so we, we, we talked about these. You know, how do you deal with an elderly parent? Not about music. Right. We don't, don't talk about music. But yeah, he's been he's been very very good to me. Um, he's a he's a, an amazing artist certainly, and. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing him this fall on the road. Ha oh, oh, I'm going to have to look into that. 
Yes, yeah, he's uh, he's touring now, and he's touring again in the fall. Okay, um, it, has there been an artist that has sort of willed a collection to you, or, or just gathered up everything and passed it on to the hall? Uh, no one, to the best of my knowledge, has done that unknowingly. It, it takes it takes uh, recruiting essentially. I mean, you have to go out and you know uh, try and get people to come to the side, you know, understand the mission. Yeah. Um, so there, there's there. The one artist who, I mean, I got him to to donate his collection was um, Scotty Moore. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Scotty Moore was, to some people, was Elvis Presley's guitar player okay. in the first part of his career. Uh, but in many ways, Scotty Moore and Sam Phillips discovered Elvis Presley. They're the ones who brought him in to, to sing. And then, then everything blew up. Um, but Scotty uh, was a wonderful guy. And... Um, I got to become very friendly with him and his longtime companion, uh, Gail. And he, over the years, he sold a lot of things. But what he had remaining, um, he ended up donating to the museum. I got him to make a big donation. Uh, most artists, because of the uh, value of things, keep things close to the vest. And in many ways, because they have kids. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've learned that one of the biggest parts of an artist's career could be after they die. Sure. For sure. Uh, certainly with Elvis Presley, you know, uh, certainly with Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michael Jackson, when he died, uh, was, was broke. He was in debt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. They've made billions since he died. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they have to, they, their greatest, um, you know, commitment is to themselves and their own legacy. So hopefully you can work into those plans. Was the, was the hall of fame ever, um, or the museum, I should say, ever afraid of an exhibit? Was there anything you shied away from? No. Um, I could tell you that the, my boss, the guy who hired me, Jim Hankey, who just recently passed away. Um, and a number of other people who worked there early on, including, um, Bob Santelli, uh, who was the head of education and programming, uh, Eileen Gallagher, who was the head of um, exhibits, and the first executive director, a guy named Dennis Barry, uh, who's a legend within the American Museum community, were not afraid to approach any subject straight on. Okay. And because if you didn't, you at that point impugned your own credibility. Because if you were going to whitewash something, if you were going to avoid controversy, then you were clearly not telling the story you we had the convenient like we had a really nice relationship with graceland and graceland would loan things of their collection which was massive on elvis presley they felt it was important that elvis presley have a presence at the rock and roll hall of fame the difference between the storytelling of the rock and roll hall of fame and graceland was at the rock and roll hall of fame you could talk about elvis's death in very stark terms right graceland didn't want to do that sure and that was their option they weren't under no obligation to talk about you know elvis's decline we yeah. could, and we did, and that's you know. Otherwise, if you say, "Oh, he just died one day," that wouldn't have been fair to the story. Right, right. He um. So so sorry. I mean, would you get pushback then from, let's say, Graceland or some some other? No, no, no. They understood. We were very clear with them, and they were clear with us. And they understood that. I mean, we would also we wouldn't go out of our way to embarrass anybody. Right. Um. But had to be honest and, and truthful and, and forthright with the subject. Understood. Understood. Was there um, was there a particular 
uh, you know, moment in your life, do you think, and I'm jumping again all over the place that, that kind of sealed you sort of into this path of, of rock and roll and, and promotions and eventual, um, curator. Oh, when I was a kid, I mean, just, I, I learned very early on that I loved music, but I really didn't have the ability to play it. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, I just, I just, I, I can pound out a couple chords on a guitar, but I'm, you know, just sorry. I'm just slightly above talentless. Okay. <laughs> I think, uh, on the scale of things. So I, but I didn't, I didn't really want to do anything else. I mean, that's why I wanted to be around that. I wanted, and I knew that there were other things people could do. You know, when, when I was a kid, I discovered who Brian Epstein was and Andrew Lou Goldham and then Peter Grant and like Jake Riviera. These are all people who managed well-known artists. Mm -hmm. Like, well, why can't I do that? What do I need to do to do that? So were you the kid who read the liner notes? Absolutely. Every single one of them. (laughs) There was every single one of them. Yeah, Shelly and I talked I, I, about that. There was something great yeah. about the liner notes, right? There's something wonderful, yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing was, you know, you, if there was a book about rock and roll, you got your hands on it. If there was a magazine, you read it. Mm-hmm. I remember standing at the uh, local drugstore's magazine rack and like going through Circus Magazine. I couldn't afford the dollar twenty-five for Circus Magazine, but I would read it there and put it back nice and neat in mint shape, so you know they could sell it. Yeah. Uh, same thing with well, Cream Magazine, I think I would buy just because it was Cream Magazine. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I try to consume as much as I could. Now you've, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> pardon me, you've written a book about the Rolling Stones, correct? Yes, that's true. And did did your, obviously your background in the museum and rock and roll helped obviously create that book? Um, yeah, I mean, th- th- that book in some ways was, was a personal exercise to prove to myself I could do it. Okay. Um, and it was also a subject I knew very, very well. Um, I didn't use any of the resources of the museum at all. I did it completely independently, um, utilizing, you know, my own personal library, my collection of things and, uh, various other sources. Um, I did no first person interviews, but it was not meant to be an in-depth book. It just was a a project that I I took on. And, And you were happy with the results, obviously. I was I was happy to be able to have a book with my name on it. On okay, the, on the binding. There you go. Okay, that, that's essentially what it comes down to. It, I mean, it, there are other things I published I'm more that I'm more proud of. Um, I worked on an exhibit with the Victorian Albert Museum in London called um, "You Say You Want a Revolution," um, rock, basically about the seismic change in music and culture between '65 and '70 or '66 and '70. And I wrote a, 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 an essay about. Um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Detroit about how they had very unique scenes that spawned their own unique type of bands, but there are certain similarities. I mean, I'm very proud of having been part of that. Okay. Is, is there, um, it, it, you mentioned something about different areas having different sounds. Um, and one of the areas that I like growing up was uh, Athens, Georgia. That had a, a really unique mm-hmm. sound. Yes, it did. How does how do you what do you credit that to these different sounds in different areas? Um, it, it's a lot of it's alchemy, uh, and a lot of it's opportunity. Obviously, Athens, the University of Georgia, was there. Mm-hmm. There was uh, it was a very inexpensive place to live, so that makes it easy for artists to be there. Um, it's funny you should mention that because I, I at one point in my career I worked with the band Pylon, who were a very important Athens group, um, and I knew bunch of the guys in REM and their organization. Um, so, yeah, gosh, now I think about it. So I knew a couple of the guys in Love Tractor. 
Um, no, it was, it was it was a city that allowed that sort of thing to grow. There has to be certain elements. First of all, there has to be an art community because uh, from the art community, the musicians spawn. There has to be an ability to have property inexpensively so you can set up and rehearse in peace. And then there has to be a venue that allows you to play. So all those things were in place in Athens. Um, those were in play in Detroit in the 60s. I mean, in New York in the 60s as well. Um, you know, but certain cities, I think, had you know, earlier on stronger scenes. But Athens certainly was a great one. Interesting. Is there, um, I do remember actually that there was an exhibit when I was there. I think it was the, the history of fashion in rock and roll. Let's, mm. does that sound familiar? No, there, we, we had an exhibit that had a lot of costumes, but it wasn't a history of fashion. Oh, okay. I mean, certainly. Yeah. I, I, that wasn't a featured exhibit. It might've been costuming but, then because costuming is very important to rock and roll. Oh yeah, it's, absolutely. Have you um, have you seen? What are your thoughts on the the two biopics that are, are recent, the Rocket Man and uh, the Rocket Man? It's Rocket Man. <laughs> yeah, Rocket Man and, uh, and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. All right. To be candid, yeah, be candid, uh, be candid. I enjoyed Rocket Man because it was not a biopic at all. It was not a biography of Elton John. It was a, a story about an individual who happened to be named Elton John, whose life mirrored Elton John. The, the screen Elton John mirrored the life Elton John. But it basically, that is, it's waiting to be a West End musical and then it'll move to Broadway is what that is. Okay. And it was entertaining for what it is. You know, here's, this is an individual struggle. This is this is the this person finding themselves. That's what that story was. It's not a biography of Ellen John. Okay. But it was entertaining. I enjoyed it for what it was. And Bohemian Rhapsody. And Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I will give Rami Malek credit for doing a very fine portrayal of Freddie Mercury. Um, I thought the rest of the movie was not great at all. Um, it rushed the story. It uh, overemphasized certain things. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it hewed to too many formulaic, uh, uh, story, uh, what's the word? mechanisms to make it work as a movie. Okay. Uh, I'm very glad that Queen saw fit to give John Deacon some, some, uh, some daylight in that since John has been out of Queen for a very long time, yet he was a very, very important member of that group, mm -hmm. uh, the bass player and songwriter. Um, but overall as a movie, eh, you know, I, I, there aren't very many biopics that I find to be really good. I mean, the Buddy Holly story, you go back to that one in 1979, it was a fictionalized version of Buddy Holly's life, but it was a very good movie. Yeah. And a lot of it just like full on had nothing to do with Buddy Holly other than he was from Texas. He played guitar. These were his hits and he died in an airplane crash. Yeah. Well, everything else was constructed to fit a narrative. Um, too many of the other fictionalized ones, they they don't really get to the core of who the person is. I would much rather see a well done documentary than um, um, a, a dramatization. Well, some of them also just seem to come and go. You hear about the hype leading up to it that there's gonna, uh, there was a James Brown one that I don't remember seeing anywhere. Uh, I well no I that one actually from what I I did not see that one. Um, and Chadwick Boseman played James yeah. Brown. And I believe Mick Jagger was one of the producers of that. Maybe Martin Scorsese was a producer. I understand that was a very good portrayal. Okay. Um, thing is, I saw James Brown perform several times. Man, I didn't feel the need to go see that. I mean, I know the story. Yeah. Maybe other people do. I mean, and that's the weird thing about me. I'm kind of you know I'm in that weird position where 
I know the story well enough, and I've spoken to many people who were inside the circle to know what really happened. So that's just my thing. Understood. Understood. One of my favorite um, scenes, actually, in the Buddy Holly story was when he was um, recording, I think, Raindrops in My Heart. And raining in my heart. Raining in my heart. Yeah, and the the, yeah. the uh, violin player came up to him and like in this heavy Yiddish accent. It was like Beethoven did the same things with the uh, with the raindrops. <laughs> I don't know why that. That's like I could I couldn't tell you anything else about that movie except Gary Busey was in it and I and we know the ending. Yeah. Uh, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, anyway, I'm, you know what? I, my audio is going to screw up in about five minutes. So I want to okay. uh, I want to ask you. If because we're sure. talking about movies and biopics and that, um, mm-hmm. do you have a favorite, uh, let's say, documentary or artist that you've seen, or just what are what are Howard's top five event oh, of music? I, I have like a top fifty. I mean, okay. There's so many artists who are my favorite and and people who I love to listen to, and it can change on any given day. Sure. Um, I mean, there's certain there's certain core artists. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, Muddy Waters, Marvin Gaye, Otis Redding, Richard Thompson, Elvis Costello, Bruce Springsteen, um, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, these are, you know, the people who are like my core favorite artists. Um, But, uh, I mean, my my iTunes has like 90,000 songs on it. So um i'm one of those people who has a digital database of ninety thousand songs who who do you think in your opinion one what what would you consider one of the best debut albums oh gosh well that's that's a funny thing about debut albums you have your entire life to write your first one and then six months to write your (laughs) second one so uh debut albums gosh my aim is true is a pretty damn good one yeah um uh outlandos the amor is a pretty damn good one um gosh I could go on and on. Uh, uh, that's, that's not a subject. I see. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? We will. What? Um, I'm going to get my computer fixed in the next couple of days, couple of weeks, and I want to do right. this again because we didn't even talk about Jews in the music business. Uh, that's true. We're going to do part two. And, okay. Can, we, can I sign you up for a part two? Sure. Uh, sometime towards the end of the month would be great. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of thank your you. summer. All right. Good luck with the bar, uh, the bar mitzvah and Thank you. Uh, everything. And um, uh, let me know if you need any more information about uh, EKC. I will. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, I really right, appreciate you. this. Take care. Bye-bye. And the neat thing about that interview was that we barely scratched the surface. I'm pretty sure we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> barely scratched the surface. So that was it. Howard Kramer from his home in Cleveland, Ohio. We talked about a lot of different things and... Um, I was so glad that Shelly had hooked me up and uh, put me in touch with him. So there you have it. Two weeks in a row, two um, really great people I spoke to. Whether the interviews are great or not, I love them. It's up to you to decide. Are you going to come back for more next week? I hope so. I hope I come back with more next week. Who am I going to talk to? I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? So there you have it. Um, thank you for listening. The podcast, Too Lazy to Write. You can find it on the website, the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word write.com, or uh, on iTunes or Google Play. I'm uh, reachable on the website. There's a little form you can fill out there, or uh, Twitter at The Real John Baker. Um, And that's going to be it for this week. Uh, If my friend Dan is listening to this while he's driving to Nova Scotia, I hope uh, you were entertained. I mean, I know it wasn't anybody from the commitments, 
but maybe that'll be my net. Oh my God. I would love to have one of the commitments on. Um, so take care of yourselves and, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I want to thank Howard Kramer again for that interview. And I want to thank Shelly for putting me in touch with Howard and, um, thank you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.